I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design with a conversation about creating, developing, and growing your signature line. This conversation is called What's My Line? Let me reset the scene for you. The West Edge Design Fair was held, as it is every year, at the Barker Hangar in Santa Monica. These conversations were held in the Convo by Design programming lounge with custom designs from John McLean, Studio Akiko, Isbell Interiors, uh, and Julia Wong Designs. They were amazing. This conversation was transformative for a number of reasons. Interior designers, many if not most, want a line to call their own. That signature line not only creates an opportunity to do business outside of the design studio, but it's also considered by many to be a legacy proposition, something that extends beyond the design work. As such, I wanted you to hear from power players in the space. And you're, you're going to hear that conversation here featuring Arch Interiors, Christopher Grubb, photographer Gray Mallon, designer Xander Nori, and uh, designer Leslie Shapiro-Joyle. This group was expertly questioned by journalist and editor Alex Abramian. This group brings some serious firepower, and here's, here's what I think you're going to like best. They are all successful at what they do, and at one time or another, they have all failed. And what I, what I liked best about this group is they don't mind telling you about their failures, because th from those failures come some of their greatest successes. I think we've talked about that before here as well. Very cool. I love this conversation, and I think you will too. This is also kind of a good segue for me to tell you about a fantastic design partner of mine, and that is Walker Zanger, who generously supports Convo by Design. Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zanger. They're, they're a fantastic family-owned company, and while the Walker Zanger brand was built on the promise to inspire designers and architects to do their best work, there's far more to it than that. Yes, that promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the very best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. But at the heart of this is a family-owned company, and you can tell by talking to them. Talk to Jonathan Zanger, any of the people within the company, any of their showroom managers, you will hear exactly what this company is all about. You know, Walker Zanger started in 1952, and they are absolutely one of the best trade partners a designer can have. Check out their newest collaboration. Um, and we're talking about creating your lines. This particular uh, collection of uh, designer Pieta Donovan's cement and ceramic tiles inspired by the patterns and colorways of the 1970s and created with a comfortable modernity. You know, Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design, featuring products for everyday style and architectural feel. Any style that you can create as a designer, you can work Walker Zanger product in and make it that much more remarkable. So check them out. Any of their 14 uh, showrooms across the country or shop online, walkerzanger.com. Let's get to this conversation from the West Edge Design Fair. What's my line? Launching a line for interior designers is often a really thrilling idea for a number of reasons. Uh, one is you get to create something that you've never seen in the market that you've been looking for for 10 years, and I finally have that vanity that I've always been looking for. That's one 
thing that it can bring to the market. The other is you can diversify a revenue stream. So, you know, interior design is a, in, probably the most one-on-one -on -one fee for service business out there and it is incredibly unscalable. You can only do so many homes in a year. So this is, another, is a, an amazing way to diversify your revenue stream. And then for a lot of interior designers, it's a way of not dealing with clients one-on-one -on -one and getting some breathing space, which I know is a pain point um, as interior design like evolves into therapy and all of those things that can happen. Um, so if anyone is out there considering doing a product line, what's great about the panel is you cannot get a more diverse group of people. It's what they're creating, how they're creating it, who's buying their product. This really hits an amazing gamut of approaches um, to doing it. And I hope that, I, what my goal for today is that it's very hands-on and it's very practical and not abstract. I hope people walk away with specific ideas. Um, and there's not a Q&A at the end, but you can um, feel free after the talk to come up and speak to anyone. Um, and I think that at the end of today, what's mostly going to come out of this is this is an amazing time to launch a line. There's been so many changes in retail, in how the interior design business works. And I think now more than ever, there's a craving to connect with the person, someone who's actually making or designing a product. And specific stories today are going to be... Um, I think really inspiring about how people have gone about this. So I'm going to let everyone introduce themselves and then we'll dive into some specifics. Xander. Hi, good morning. I'm Xander Nouri, uh, co-founder and creative director of Xander Nouri LLC. And we run a multifaceted design firm that's focused on interiors and product development. Um, we have a branded lifestyle furniture collection that we launched a couple years ago with Theodore Alexander. And we have showrooms all over China where our product is shown and uh, other international countries as well, Russia, Japan, as well as um, the domestic showrooms that they have. In addition to that, we have sort of pivoted and started focusing on also doing white label design for um, all kinds of firms from the ultra luxury sort of high end to the trade firms all the way down to sort of um, high end retail. And it's all primarily focused on um, products for interiors, so furniture, lighting, textiles, plumbing. Um, what? What does white label mean sure. for those who don't know? So white label is when you're designing for a brand that doesn't have your name on it as the designer. And um, we'll get into that a little bit, I'm sure, up here. Um, a little bit more background on me. I've been in the industry for like 15 years. I, I sort of cut my teeth on um, product design and interior design working for um, an esteemed firm in Los Angeles and was creative director there where I collaborated um, with the principal and designed products along, alongside him. Uh, for uh, many brands and many genres, um, from Kravit, Walker Zanger, um, Peter Alexander, Formental, so many segments of products, and um, then went out and sort of jumped off a cliff and decided, hey, I want to do this myself. So, yeah. 
Um, I'm Christopher Grubb. I have a company called Arc Interiors. Um, we do residential, commercial, high-end medical. Um, I did not put my name on it. That's a whole different conversation because there's a reason we can get into that later. I have two product lines um, or two brands. One is called the CG Collection. It is mass market. Um, I like to say consumer-friendly pricing. I prefer the expression. And the other is high-end and luxury. Um, I also host on House Tipster. It's an online outlet for homeowners and the industry. Um, it's a lot of fun doing that. So thank you for having me. Hi, everybody. I'm Leslie Shapiro, and I started my firm in 1998. I was in architecture and interior design. I always loved furniture, um, would always sketch it, wanted to build it, kind of became a, a woodshop groupie. But one of the things that I noticed is when I would go to shop for projects, either for myself or for um, the firms that I was working for, I could never find the furniture that I wanted to put into the projects. Or if I found the furniture that I liked, there was always something a little bit off, maybe proportions, finish, price, timeline. And after sketching for so long and after getting to know my resources, I thought, well, I'm just gonna build it myself. And that's what I did. And I started very organically. Um, it turns out that when I did set up a small venue to bring in some of my pieces, the demand was there. And so a collection was born. Um, not only was I one that was looking for all of the pieces that I couldn't find, a lot of the architects and designers were looking for the same thing. And so now I provided a, an outlet for them to get the furniture. So I have been um, in a boutique design form firm for the last 21 years. I've been in a little space on Fairfax, which has expanded. Um, and I'm doing it because I love it. And uh, the industry has changed a lot. And staying small has allowed us to weather a lot of storms, but hopefully my, my experiences will help, you know, uh, shed some light for some of you. Hi, everybody. I'm Gray Malin. Um, I'm a photographer. I took a little bit of a different approach to entering the fine art photography world. I hailed from a interior design focused family. So I kind of went into this world always thinking about what would look fabulous on your walls and your home. Um, so I create work around the world in limited edition series that um, are produced in our studios in West Hollywood and are framed here in LA and then are shipped around the world to different projects and clients. And we run a direct-to-consumer e-commerce business. Um, over the past 10 years, social media has really like <laughs> done a lot and um, it's allowed us to experiment um, with a product line which has been really fun to um, kind of push photography to places it hasn't been before and see it come alive not just on your wall in a 2D form but in a 3D form and um, yeah we have I've learned so much in the in the past decade and I'm also really excited to share today. Thank you, everyone. I told you it was completely diverse. Everyone has a 
completely different approach. So Christopher, I wanted to ask you, can you give us um, a timeline of what, you, what was your first product that you started and how did it go from there? So my first, I want to thank Lux Magazine for the face tell too. The, that if I'm using it, please don't take a picture. It's hot up here. Um, so I was fortunate. I had a client who owned an import business of bathroom vanities. And I had done a house for him, and he, he thought I was talented. And he said, you should do a line for us. They wanted to be better, best showrooms and like that. Um, so the first set of designs were, they say, pick anything out you want. We can resource in China. No. Um, and then the collection did launch. Just to give you background, like the first designs, they sent samples over. I rejected half of them, the metalwork and stuff like that. Second set, I went to China. I was on the ground 41 hours to fly 38 hours. And you're a little dizzy holding up a thing telling people two millimeters bigger. So the first launch, I had uh, one of the designs was nominated Interior Design Product of the Year, which was quite a compliment considering out the gate and it was my first line. Them as a company, though, they didn't know how to sell it. And that's not a slap on them. They didn't know how to sell it, so they went big box. Unfortunately, it discontinued half of mine because for their market, it was too expensive with the consumer they were aiming for. And your name is on the product? Um, it's part of the CG collection. My other brand, I realized, I didn't say, is autographed by Christopher Grubb. We're in Hollywood, so it's autographed by Christopher Grubb. And the CG collection's the mass market. When did it launch? Um, seven, eight, eight years ago. And um, like last year, it's through um, Home Depot, Lowe's, eBuild. And I think they did 5,000 SKUs last year because it's countertop differences and stuff. And then the evolution from that is I met a licensing agent at the Bold Summit in Palm Springs who researched me and said, you have a line, have you thought about hiring and like pursuing more product? And uh, Sure, I like getting that check once a month I'm getting from my vanity line. Um, my first, it took, we'll go into it more about rebranding. I added a brand and how do you position yourself? And I'm not on a TV show and what was my strategy to get eyes on me to show this vendor, okay, we know your talent, but what can you do for us? It's like, here's what I, how I can market you. It's not just here's my product and you guys go sell it. It's you got to push it, too. Right. You want to get the sales. So I um, had a relationship with California Faucets down in Huntington Beach, and they have a patented style drain. Um, the throat of it's a square, and it's really sensational. And the owners have known me and watched me, my career evolve, especially in kitchen and bath. They've got a lot of accolades in that. And I just launched four drain covers, style drains, they're called. Um, they just came out three weeks ago. And as, yes, um, go to CaliforniaFaucets.com. Um, and then a, uh, there's going to be two sets of faucetry that are coming out hopefully by the end of the year. That process has been over a year, and it's 14 months of development. Um, and so this isn't just this instant. And then I just had a line of lighting launch with Theodore Alexander. Um, I was in High Point last year, or last weekend. And it uh, feels like last year. And um, that was... They picked 51 fixtures I designed. They could only get 29 done in time. I saw the samples three weeks before the show. So it was that holding your breath in Dallas. They flew them into Dallas because I was there speaking. And uh, 
yeah, you're nervous. You're walking in like, oh my God, is this going to work or they're going to delay it? So they're going to pick up the other 22 fixtures and then my licensing team convinced them to pick up another 28. So hopefully next year there's going to be another 50 on top of it. So. Okay, so you had me at monthly check. Um, I I like the monthly check, but, but to clarify one thing is like on the lighting, a lot of it was prototype. They want to see the numbers. They want to see the reaction. And considering it was late, the press release went out a week before, there was no magazine sponsor, we, they're really impressed the eyes that got on me. But it's going to be now value engineering, seeing how many orders there are, then production. I'm not going to see a check on this for eight months at least. Just to clarify, it's not right out the door. And so, for example, the big box vanities. How often do you have to recreate new product for that? They are, I, they just optioned 14 new designs that I'm in development. I have a meeting next week. Um, part of it, it, it's marketing yourself. One of the owners thought it was a waste of time to have a PR agent, but I specifically hired a PR agent to pitch the vanities. They got it in hotel magazines. They got it. They're very specialized in that. So it was a strategy. One of the owners doesn't like the check, and it's kind of like, I sold 5,000 SKUs, you know. Um, But they realize what my presence has become, hosting and designing and and awards and stuff for this, that part of the industry. And so the owner saw me at KBiz and came up to me and said, yeah, we're going to start leveraging you. But I did have another vanity line I signed. It was still going to be under CGC, the CG collection. Um, The tariffs killed it. So... There is no check coming from that. You know, they optioned 18, and so people are scrambling to build a factory in Vietnam or okay. like that. Okay. Um, Xander, tell us, I know that right now your work is both white label and licensed products, right? Yes. So yes. Is, was white label, which is creating products where your name is not going to appear, it's going to look like the work of someone, another company, is that a good way to get into the business? Um, I think what it comes down to is, is the product good? And for me, it wasn't about that. I could see how maybe it could be for another designer. Uh, For me, I have my brand, which is established. I have my licensed collection, which is all-encompassing. And it's very um, defined as modern. And um, what I wanted to do, and I think one of the strengths of what we can do, is design for multiple styles at multiple price points, and so we wanted to get into it to have more fun. And so some of the other collections that we're designing are not modern at all. They're very traditional um, or industrial, um, so kind of all different. And So white label, you have more freedom because your name's not on it. You can try different things. You have a lot of freedom. Okay. And I think what people don't realize is you know, all these products, like Restoration Hardware, for example, or any company at the, at the retail level, at the high end, everything is designed by somebody. And most of these companies don't have in-house design teams. They source from designers, and I know many of them that are sort of behind the scenes. Um, and those designers collaborate with the merchandisers, which put together, you know, and the manufacturers, which put together the whole um, collection for that company and sort of, it's all under the umbrella of their creative director or the brand that they have and they know their customer, but when they come to me, you know, they, 
they have a specific request, but we get to play in that sort of realm. Um, so if someone was in the audience and they're interested in potentially doing white label, they would contact the creative director of uh, Restoration Hardware? Who is the person? Who's on the masthead? That's the person. <laughs> I think contact. that's a million dollar question. Um, that, that's why like, you get an agent. I, I don't have an agent. Um, I've just been in the industry long enough that you meet people. Um, I think what someone in the audience or somebody listening would have to consider is for a manufacturer to consider you for a project, um, they're looking at you to fill a gap. Either you're going to offer them some, something that they don't have in their line right now in terms of styling or bringing um, you know, a new perspective, or they're looking at you because you have an established brand and you're going to bring them new eyes, like you were saying. Um, you're going to bring them a whole other you know, level of clientele that they don't already have exposure to. So Can they're going to leverage off your name. In exactly. That Can I ask, I call it OEM. What's the difference OEM and white label? And I don't know what OEM stands for, but OEM was, um, it's a term like FOB. FOB, freight on board, it means where's it shipped from. Because I have a line that I kind of forced this manufacturer to take, but I was going to do OEM, which my name's not on it. Yeah. What's it's, the difference? Um, OEM is kind of like uh, manufacturer speak for... Um, yeah, I don't remember. Yeah, I forgot exactly what it stands for. But basically what this means is a company like Restoration Hardware, because we already mentioned that, is sourcing from a manufacturer like Theodore Alexander or the like, because they don't have their own manufacturing, um, they, don't, they don't manufacture anything, they source. So OEM is when the manufacturer sources from another factory and the designer gets sort of caught in that. So we design the product, we go, we review it with the, fa with the factory, but ultimately it ends up in the showroom for X company. And that's white label OEM. It's kind of the same thing. Okay, I didn't know if it was the same. I think yeah. so. Yeah, you. Um, all right, so pivoting to Leslie, so there's no Chinese showrooms. There's no manufacturing firms. Leslie, um, brick and mortar was supposed to be dead. Um, High-end, handcrafted furniture, in theory, was going to be put out of business by mass-produced furniture, and Leslie's bucking all of those trends, um, and you've ridden some big economic waves in the process. Yeah, well, I think what I did that just came naturally is I just built the product that I wanted to see. I didn't think about it too much. I just went with what I wanted to do, and the people showed up. If can, you can you outline what you make, what I mean? Wait, no, what you build, what you create. Oh, your okay. So I I am a boutique design firm. I'm in Los Angeles, and I specialize in solid wood, and I specialize in um, very minimal, very sort of quiet pieces of furniture. They're they're heirloom products. They are signed and dated. <clears throat> um, my my strength is that I. I collaborate with clients. So I have my aesthetic and I have my collection, but one of the things that I learned and really enjoyed as a designer was the process of collaborating with people. I did not want to simply have a revenue stream or import furniture and kind of set it up as a retail store. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted the gratification of building 
probably one one piece, unique pieces. Um, timing was very good because when I set up the studio, I learned that I was pregnant. And so there was no way that I was going on site to do interior design projects, which were already so labor intensive. And you're responsible for everything and the logistics are insane. So what designing fewer pieces of furniture gave me was the gratification of designing art, essentially. But instead of designing a space, I was designing a piece. And so for me, that was lovely. And people came, people showed up. I Again, I had a small venue. I displayed a couple pieces, architects and designers. I didn't need a lot of people. So you have mass. I didn't have mass. I had a very small demographic. But since I was a small firm with very little overhead, I had everything I needed. And so it, it worked. And it has scaled successfully. I've been doing it for 21 years. I built my first piece 24 years ago. Um, but I did it just in a different way. I didn't, I didn't know how to do it that way. So I just sort of bumped along and had it happen, you know, organically. I just want to jump in. This is the way a lot of designers start. To your question about how do you how do you break in? How do you get, you know, into one of these agreements where you're designing products for companies or line for yourself? Um, the firm that I worked at before, uh, Michael Berman Limited, he did this. He would he would you know he designed sort of like products for his projects yeah. that um, he couldn't find, right. and those products eventually became a collection of furniture. And now he's doing mass market. So, yeah. yeah. But you have a storefront. I do. Because a lot of designers put it in a showroom. And we should at some point talk about how much does this cost to do? Um, so, if you're going to put a line in a showroom, you invest in all of it. You put it in the showroom, they don't pay, they may pay for shipping, they may send it back to you. If you're going to go that route, I mean, storefront or through a showroom, keep that in mind. And that was one of the things that I decided not to do early on is I looked at having other people represent my furniture or having my furniture in New York or in Chicago. And I realized that... That it was already expensive furniture. It's expensive to produce because I do produce it in Los Angeles and I deal with solid wood, which just by its nature is a more expensive product. And since I don't mass produce, um, it's more labor. It's more labor intensive, more hours equals more money. Once I put that product into a showroom in New York, they have to double or triple the price, right? So now... I'm obligated in my little studio showroom in Los Angeles to match that price in New York. Um, not everybody is going to want to come in and pay $12,000 for a table. And then I also realized how much time is that showroom spending selling my product. First of all, I have to outfit them with the product, so I have to build it, which is costly. Then I have to ship it. Then if it gets damaged, I have to replace it. How much product can I afford to put in that New York showroom? And at the end of the day, how much profit margin am I making and how much time are they spending selling my product when they might have 30 other lines to sell? When it came down to it, it made more financial sense for me to sell my product out of my little studio and ship it to New York. 
if I need to. And I think we should add on yeah. later about capsule collection. You could do a capsule collection at a lower price point like that's Michael right. Graves did that's for Target. Right. Yeah, so that's what I do. There's another outlet too. But Gray needs to speak instead of just sit there and look right. handsome. So, yeah, I agree. This is also interesting. I'm learning a lot. But so what's interesting is you have um, retail and um, trade um, commerce. You have direct to consumer via brick and mortar. I know you also sell through your website, but this is primarily a brick and mortar touch and feel experience. And then Gray, you are direct to consumer with no brick and mortar in a totally different way. Yes, we launched wholesale, I think three years ago. Um, I am sort of similar to Leslie that I don't want to have a bunch of product like be responsible for <laughs> a lot of inventory. Um, so we approached, um, people really love stores and um, it's great. People can shop for artwork if you set up a beautiful, um, anyways, we, uh, we launched wholesale. So Neiman Marcus, Saks Fifth Avenue, Bloomingdale's all jumped in like out of the gate. We launched trays. Um, we launched coasters and we launched, launched candles. And of those three, the trays are made on demand in Austin, Texas, and they're printed on this like beautiful acrylic. So we don't have to deal with that. Um, the candles, do you guys have candles? I don't have them. No. They're a real hysterical market. <laughs> um, but there were no photographers who even dared to figure out how to print beautifully on a candle. Um, and we just went there and figured it out. But we had to buy into 1,500 units. But all of a sudden, Neiman Marcus buys 1,200, puts them in every store. So you're only left to sell 300. So there's sort of a beauty to it. It's just a matter of... Um, you know, you have to go. We opened a booth in New York. Now, in New York, it costs probably $30,000 to have your name and all your products on display for only, like, four days. So it's a huge investment. You have to realize, uh, is it worth it? Is it? So for that, me... That was worth it for you, that investment, the 30000 Huge. Okay, it. will you tell people what's on the trays and the candles in so, case they're not aware? Yes, I'm a photographer, and I have um, four books. My first book coffee table book, which we all know and designers love styling books and so forth. It's called Beaches and it's, um, it's, <laughs> I see someone with a puzzle. Um, yes, it's a, air, I went around the world for like three years and I shot out of a doorless helicopter um, looking down on the, mo the world's most famous beaches and sort of started an interior design trend, which you can now see at like, you know, Ikea uh, of aerial beach photography, but I had no idea that this would become what it became. And this book, Beaches, um, was so popular and an overnight success for our publisher. Um, Instagram and social media allowed us to see people styling the coffee table book into their their home with a beautiful candle, a beautiful little bit of flowers. People were sharing these images. So we decided, why don't we bring photography to this space? So we decided to launch with trays. So the trays have the photographs that are like basically like luminous up the, in the acrylic on the bottom of the tray. And our coasters are the same. And our candles have, you know, the photography delicately printed um, and like a glossy, sort of high-end manner. Um, 
So for us, it's been all about um, going from e-commerce to being in maybe like someone like Leslie's store for people to discover us and it's high low price point. I'm talking like really not everybody can afford like a $1,200 photograph so let's give them a $49 candle um, etc. So it's been interesting but I'm a big believer in direct to consumer. Try to keep your your um, inventory low. Um, I still sign in addition every photograph we sell. Like I want to see the quality over you know quantity, um, etc. Can I ask him a question? You skipped something. You got up in I a know, helicopter sorry. and started taking pictures. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think of you as a fine artist first. That you were the photography was gallery and because you're just all of a sudden like, yeah, I just jumped in helicopters and what were you doing? How did you, what was your path to get to that? Because you have an investment in getting in helicopters. Yeah. And- um, so it was, it was pre-drone that you were doing all this. Yeah, before drones. Um, my path was, um, I just went out into the world uh, 2008, there was a recession. Um, I was taking, I had le- you know, I graduated college, I had a job in corporate America doing something I didn't want to do. I left kind of abruptly, just within six months. I made the decision I was going to leave by, you know, and, and I wanted to do photography. And um, every gallery was closing, and um, I set up a little booth in a flea market in West Hollywood. And I love sharing this story. I'm super proud to have started in a flea market because it's where I got to talk to people and I got to learn what people were looking for to hang in their home. What was that magic that would make someone actually want to put something on their wall and look at it every single day. And through that connection, I learned that people were intimidated by the fine art world. They didn't feel comfortable buying from a gallery. They often felt excluded. Um, and I saw a, I saw like an, um, a whole world of creating approachable fine art photography that made people feel really good and joyful. Um, and from there, I made a cold email to One King's Lane. If you guys remember One King's Lane, it was a online flash sale website business model, and it took off during that recession. People were shopping on there like nuts, and it helped me, you know, learn what people. For example, I could release. 24 aerial images, maybe six shot above the beaches in Australia, six in Hawaii, six in Los Angeles, and they would tell you, like, these four have the most clicks. And I would learn, like, oh, people love palm trees. Maybe I should shoot, like, the beach with some palm trees in it. I, you know, so I got to learn data. I got to learn... So it was, like, grassroots to One King's Lane, and then I eventually built and launched graymailing.com and every, like basically every penny I earned for the first couple years, you guys probably can relate to this, I just put right back in to how do I get to the next helicopter costs or building a website, etc. Um, so that was sort of my story and now I have shot like 24 series. Um, only like five of them are shot from a helicopter. The rest are, um, I've worked with Disney on a fine art project. I've worked with like Google, but I mean, those are weird. I've done, the Beverly Hills Hotel allowed me to be the first photographer to shoot a project there. Um, I'm about to release a project shot in Palm Beach. Palm Beach is like the most exclusive neighborhood 
I, I mean, I've never been to a more hoity-toity fabulous place, but hard to get people to allow you to shoot photographs in those, in that sort of world. Um, and anyway, I, I think one other project which we'll talk about in a little bit is, if you guys have ever been to Palm Springs, um, there's a famous hotel there called the Parker, and Jonathan Adler designed it probably like a decade ago, and um, I shot these exotic animals living in the hotel. So you're greeted by a monkey and then there's a zebra at the croquet lawn and a giraffe and your uh, bartender's penguins and there's a, there was an elephant. It was amazing and um, so I've done a lot but the aerial photography really was the, um, the big step forward into this design world. That I wanted to say when you said that um investing in the company. When I first started out, I, I did not have enough budget for flowers for the studio. We were, we were so small, and I would look at, okay, if I spend $10 a week on flowers, that's $40 per month. I didn't have it. And so it was about figuring out where you were going to put money. When I, when I really first started out and I got paid a nice check, I spent $300 on a fax machine. And I, I was so pleased about that. And I set it up near the sofa. So it's, it's kind of about bumping along. You know, you start small, you invest your time and your passion and put whatever money you make, if you can afford to, put it back into the company in whatever area you can. And I personally think that going, you know, starting at a flea market, not having $40 for flowers, this will prove how dedicated you are to the process. Because however strategic you are, whatever business plan you create, there are going to be hiccups. And the best thing that I can tell you is to be prepared for hiccups. Be resilient, be dedicated, um, and just keep going no matter what. And consistency is hugely important. Keep meeting people, keep um, accessing your opportunities and seeing, you know, if somebody's got a helicopter, you're like, hey, can I borrow your helicopter and go shoot some beaches? Just be assertive and friendly and figure out what your next opportunity is because you never know who's behind the next door. And you never know who your client is because you said that you went from mostly interior designers and architects and now you have a new client base. We, we have clients sometimes that come in that by the looks of them you don't know if you should have locked the door before they came in. And that's the reality of it. And then you get surprised when they say, yeah, I'll pay cash for that $22,000 sofa. So you never, ever know. But you said you're getting a new kind of end user who's buying it, not just people in the design business, end users who really want handcrafted, functional. And one of the things that's been very, very surprising is that when we started out, again, we we were a destination, so we had 
um, industry people. We had architects and designers that were buying and they were putting into their furniture. And then it grew into sort of a little cult firm where people knew about us. We had no signage, so people would find us. And I think that that was part of the, the mystique and the magic as well. So we had sort of a design-savvy crowd that would come. And we're in Los Angeles, so entertainment provides a lot of disposable income. I, I did manage in the 2008 writer's strike. That was one that killed a lot of us. And I managed to subsidize the business by taking on one or two interior design jobs. So that worked out well because no one was buying furniture. Um, what was I saying? Oh, the end user. Oh, oh, so... Um, architects and designers and sort of industry people, but what I'm finding, which is so fascinating, is the the millennials, people that we thought um, perhaps didn't have the disposable income to do it. This whole generation has grown up with tech, and they are craving something handmade. They are craving analog. They are craving connection with their art, with their furniture. They want a story. And they want a story, and they are willing to have you know, an apartment, four bare walls, but one gorgeous piece of art or furniture that they can connect with. And so you will be surprised. You, you will think you know what uh, the industry is gonna, is gonna do next year, you never really know what's going to happen. And so I would say probably 45% of our new consumers are people under 30, which I never expected. For a high price point product. For so, okay, high, so. high price point for, you know, product that is six, $7,000 per piece. Right. So Gray had his farmer's market booth. You have your brick-and-mortar store. How do you have any sense of what your customer is responding to? How do you get that feedback? For my interiors or for no, product? No, for your product. For product. Well, I think, isn't it amazing when somebody wants to buy something and put it in their house that we designed? Yes. I'm still just like, wow, it's yeah. so cool. Yeah. Um, ask me the question again. So what's, I mean, I know sales is the ultimate feedback. But how, if things are being sold in showrooms, how do you get a sense of how people, how the customer... The, sale, the sales report. But um, part of what I love about what I do, I don't have to deal with the orders. I don't have to deal with the return. I don't have to deal with the call like with custom furniture I do. Well, you know, it just seems a little off. I don't have to deal with it. Um, so the response is based on what's selling, really. And, you know, it's like... Modern Bathroom actually is nine years, and I think it was eight years ago, I said, you should do white. They're like, white? Because it was all espresso. And then I'm like, you should do gray. You know, and then they're just kind of, because I know what's going on with it. So the lighting, um, like California faucets, the designs, I'm flattered. They literally sent a press release and some catalogs, and the president emailed, it's like, we sold four. And it's like, thank God. You know, because these companies are putting a lot of money behind us. A lot, six figures to develop this, launch it, market it. So you want to make sure it sells. And so the lighting with Theodore Alexander, it's kind of pre-order. Like it's a prototype. Are they going to order? It's going to be six months before they get it. And so you have to plan that lull. Like I left out, I have a dimensional tile line that's going to launch early next year. It's being made in Mexico, and it's but he's 
using me, I'm going to say, to really hit the American market and my presence and stuff. Um, but to market that, he tripled my percentage of like what my percentage is, which is good incentive. It's going to not be inexpensive. So. For me, I travel to the markets and you know, the companies that we work with have large showroom presentations of the product that we design. And you can really interact with the customer or even just sort of, you know, stand in the shadows and start to understand what the feedback is. You know, because the customer responds right away. They light up and they engage with the product. Um, and you're eavesdropping. You're yeah, kinda, and so you, you get like, a sense okay, of it. Are they going to say something good? But or? also for us, I mean, like, these other products are sort of um, made to order. So you're, the order's placed and then you make the product and fulfill the order. For us, we work with the manufacturer and like the merchandising director and they actually set the market trend. So we're actually telling the customer what they're going to like. And it's kind of odd to say but um, they invest a lot of money. Like you said, they stock this product in the masses. So they intend for it to sell. And if it doesn't sell, you know, it's a lot of pressure on everyone. So it has to sell. But and we take risks, but um, you know, that's part of the designer's job is to sort of set the set the trend and lead lead the market forward that way. Well, and I think you know, you do custom, and it's it's what's missing in the market. That's the biggest draw of coming back to them and what's like. I have this lighting line. You guys will all see it and go, "Oh my God, it was so obvious. Nobody's using that detail, and it's in my high end and my mass market." nobody's doing it. I was going to go OEM with Hudson Valley because Theodore Lyle's been always taking too long. But it's the customization. But you're also designing, keeping in mind, I call it a piece of jewelry. Like that one thing that's going to get tons of press. They may sell five, but it's a jewelry piece to hook them for media and get the coverage. And you, your trademark piece. And then you have to think what's going to sell and what, what has a little bit more style and you know I think what happens is you're like oh we're going to sell it. my family had a retail store for 100 years and you go to the shows and you're like we're going to sell a ton of those this one maybe well the maybe's on the fifth reorder and the tons are sitting there so you don't know what, what's going to happen with that and the thing is this is a long process you, Xander made it sound like you know and you take some designs and um, restoration hardware um, there's a lot of background on how you develop. I spent an entire year on speaking engagements and developing a resume and a press chart and winning awards and here's magazine coverage. It's intense, but I needed eyes on me. And the manufacturers, who are you? Here's the eyes I can get on you. Um, and so that's really important um, to keep in mind as well. You really have to commit. I had to con con contract my business to expand the product. Um, I have to remember I do interior design because, uh, you know, it's, I need some money coming in because of the, the pursuit. But you have to be prepared for that investment. And, you know, I always say you can self-create, you can private label and establish yourself as a product designer and use that to get exposure to. Or there's places in L.A. I was approached about fulfillment. I would design, they would fulfill it. I can't really get to it right now because I don't want to do e-commerce in that route. I just want a separate business model. Uh, like Christopher said, the process is long. It can take 12 months, 18 months that we're designing out. Um, so like right now we're designing for the later end of 2020 and 2021. And so you study market trends and, um, you know, work with the merchandising team. 
uh, but it takes a while to put all of that together. And um, So what is a home category that you think would be the best one for a uh, burgeoning designer to try and break into? Not candles, I'm assuming. <laughs> Maybe but that's, what, what is it? What, what, are, like, what, what are you, do you think? What are you good at and what do you know now? What do you like to do? Yeah. Because I learned this doing my vanities. They wanted this different style and it didn't sell. I didn't like them. So what you're good at, what you love doing, is the enthusiasm. That's important. So it's, it's really about passion, you know? I mean, I'm talking to a rug company, two rug companies, one smaller, and it's like, is it going to be a vanity project, meaning my name's on it, and get numbers or hold out for the bigger company who doesn't have the bandwidth right now? And so if you love designing rugs... It's such an ideal time. Like, I go to the shows, and there'll be companies that have a designer's name in the window. I've never heard of them. But they're in big in a part of the country, and they're maximizing that. And they're using us because you submit a product. Like, Greg can submit a piece of art. He has a story. So the romancing for marketing, too. They want to interview the designer. What was the concept? What was behind this? A lot of times, if a PR agent submits a product, it feels like an ad. So it's a good time. It's a really good time to do licensing, Um, and it's really your skill set. If you do rugs, do rugs, and go in and just say, may I show you some designs? And you have to sell it. I'm a big fan of your company. I have some ideas I think are missing from the line. I design first. I don't look at product like my rugs. I couldn't look. It messes me up like something sticks. Then I go back when I'm done and look at what's in their product line, so I can say, okay, this is too similar or whatever. Also, it's always good to balance both. I think passion is absolutely key. Like, designing is art. And so you have to start with the passion. You have to... You, it's authentic. It's it, it's what drives you. But you, at the same time, as if you want to design rugs, maybe kitchens sell best. So maybe you can be thinking of both. And so one might be paying the bills. And one is more like you're literally trying to push your way through with it. But never give up on what... Just because we might tell you today that, you know, licensing sofas is the number one most profitable way to make money, it's it's like a whole. I think it's just really important everybody always remembers to think about that passion and what's driving you, um, and always work on that. And and what it is too is thinking outside the box. So I take pictures out of airplane windows. I don't, and it's commercial. <laughs> yeah. Um, but what I did is manipulated them for a line for a, a presentation of rugs and I call it sky views and everybody's like, we don't see anything like this, you know? And so don't subscribe. Like I have to look at faucets. I have to look at the style drains I did for California faucets. Like, Oh my God, I got to think, no, just have fun. Yeah. And the problem too, when you start doing product, it's so fun and intimate and you don't have a client and that's, it's scary, but it's so much fun. Okay. Um, we're getting close to time. I did have one final question that I've asked everyone before so they could prepare for it. I wanted to know what was, um, your hardest lesson learned? What cost you the most money? Which, what wasted you the most time? What can you share with the audience that by knowing this, people can es- hopefully skip this and uh, avoid this? So, Gray, what was your most hardest lesson in launching a line from zero to where you are now? I mean, it's specific, but for me, it was building a website. I paid a fortune that I shouldn't have had to pay. But I think in the last 10 years, it's gotten better for people who are trying to build a website. It just was something where um, 
you should really vet candidates. There's so many great people out there who can custom build online, and um, you need like five references at, to make sure this is the right person to trust to build your website. And this shouldn't be a $50,000 investment. Exactly. I mean, it's... You... <laughs> no. 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 It depends. It's, and not, of course, it's not the 90s. But I just think that, for me, that was the hardest lesson I have learned where I could not... I had no one to turn to and right. say... And even now for so many things, but the website is just important to always vet candidates and get great, um, it's just like interviewing an employee, like get five references and make sure, you know, they understand the scale of what you want to build and be, communicate, but that, that's me. Um, mine is kind of more big picture. I... The, the biggest lesson that I kind of learned because I was thinking about this is I got some really good advice once and I realized that I fell into this. You cannot fall in love with your company. You cannot fall in love with your brand. You cannot fall in love with your product. Um, and that's something that I did because it, and I think all designers do it because we put our soul and our passion into our product, into our brand, into our clients, into everything that we do. And then it takes it from being a business and making money and being profitable and it turns it into a passion project where you're willing to, you know, settle for a bad deal to get the deal. Um, you know, you know. So you have to have. So for me, um, it's about having that baseline and being able to, you know, know when you should walk out of a meeting and walk out of the negotiation and work with people that you love. Um, you know, all of those things are kind of for me. Um, that was my hardest lesson because I, I did. I fell in love with certain designs. I, you know, you push for them. You fall in love with, you know, collections. You fall in love with an idea. And at the end of the day, um, all that's important, but it, it's all objective. And, and you should be able to listen to the advice of, um, you know, an expert that says that's, the scale is wrong, this, you know, when you're in a product review meeting. And, and now I'm very, very um, malleable in the sense that when I'm in a product review meeting or something and we're looking at designs, you know, everyone has an opinion and the people in the room are experts. And so often I get a company or a creative director or a merchandiser or a president tell me, wow, you're so easy to work with uh, because, because I listen. And a lot of the big name designers shut people down and they don't want anyone's opinion. So I think that was the biggest kind of big picture um, lesson for me. You triggered one thing important about doing product, which people are impressed. We can do production drawings. It's not just this sketch of like, oh, here's this thing that's a chandelier. You better be able to do production drawings. They're going to get sent overseas. You're going to get shop drawings back. Make sure it's, you, that helps in selling this. That was a big deal, our renderings and our drawings. It didn't mean to interrupt. What you soft, triggered that. What software? Do you use for uh, that? 3D Max for the renderings. Okay. And they take a long time for the quality. It's like, oh my God, I have to wait. Okay. So what's your hardest lesson learned? Well, my money failure was deciding to open an office in Orlando, Florida in 2006. Um, I have no regrets. It costs a lot of money, but I have no regrets. I think the mistakes specifically pursuing product is when I started this two and a half years ago. How many custom pieces, do you have pictures of your custom furniture? Sure. See that table over there and see that there and see that in the room? I didn't photograph them separately. 
I would have a huge line of custom furniture. Huge. Because right. as designers, it's like you said, oh, it's fine like it is, but can we change the leg and can we add the arm and can we put this over here? So unfortunately, that was a mistake. That was a mistake. I could right out the door have a furniture line. And I think social media, I fought it. Um, I was under my company and I just went on my own and they, I had to take the word influencer off. I'm like, really? I have 210 people in a week and we're not an influencer. I, you know, you can't have an ego either. You have, to, you, have to, you have to take your ego aside. And Arc Interior, as I said before, I have clients I've never met. They call my office. They hear my hourly. I say I have great seniors. The senior can go out and do it. And I want to give that opportunity to the designers, too. I tell the designer, you have to let go. It's about the client. Right. It's not about me. It's the, the client. Okay. Document your work. Important. All right. I changed my answer like 15 times. <laughs> but here's what I'm going to tell you. Um, I think my biggest mistake was staying too long and trying to convince people that were never really consumers of the furniture trying to convince them why the furniture was good. Um, you know, just spending too long in relationships that really were never going to go anywhere. So you pick your target person. There's going to be a consumer that loves what you do. You focus on them. You spend time designing for them. And forget about the others. You're not going to please everybody. You're going to do what you do well. And you're going to find your audience for it. And you don't have to convince anybody else that what you do is special. Just focus on the people that love what you do. And they will continue to come. And you will keep creating and learning from there. So I think I spent just a lot of time and a lot of um, stuff, you know, you let people, you let the worms get in and just don't for, forget about it. Can I joke correcting one mistake? My Instagram is the Christopher Grubb. Uh, so try, you know, there I'm trying to be more successful. They can tell theirs too, but that's my joke of trying to fix my error. One more. Photography. You have to have good photography. People wanted furniture. You know, you would make furniture, and they wanted it in their house. And so you didn't, I didn't take the time to properly, professionally photograph it, so I knew it had been made. And once it goes to the client, they're like, they're in, they're using it. So, and you don't always know if that's going to be appropriate for photography. I can tell you stories. Um, so get, you know, leave a little band of time to professionally photograph whatever it is that you've done so that you can then have eyes on it. Okay. Thank you everyone for coming. Thank you for a great panel. This was wonderful. And everyone is available um, for your one-on-one -on -one questions for about 10, 15 minutes. Thanks everyone. Thank you. So there you go. Another fantastic conversation by design from the Westage Design Fair. This one called What's My Line? Featuring. Oh gosh, featuring. You heard him. You love it. I, I love this. I love this. I really do. Thank you, Christopher Grubb, Gray Mallon, Xander Nori, uh, Leslie Shapiro-Joyle, and Alex Abramian. Thank you all for participating and sharing what you know. And I think we, we got a lot out of this. I know I did. So it was great. Really appreciate you. Thank you, Walker Zanger, for your generous support of the podcast. And thank you for listening. I appreciate it.
very much. Uh, I appreciate you coming out to events like West Edge and showing me pictures of your designs and asking questions. And I appreciate you downloading the show. And uh, as we've been playing with Siri and learning, all you have to do is say, hey, Siri, play Convo by Design podcast. And she will. She'll do it. Thank you again for listening. And until next week, keep creating. (laughs) 